It's Friday, February 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Texas has been the story of the week. Battered by a winter storm, it left millions without power. While much of the power has been restored after days and freezing temperatures, there is still a food and water crisis there. It has also exposed huge flaws in the Texas power grid when it comes to extreme weather events. Josh Letterman, correspondent at NBC News, joins us for how huge demand for power and power plants that failed to produce that power led to a grid failure. Next, the latest data from Pfizer shows that its vaccine is less effective against a South African variant of the coronavirus. While clinical trials have yet to be done, lab experiments show that there's about a two-thirds drop in the neutralization powers against the variant. Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News, joins us for what this means for the current batch of vaccines we have. Finally, while the main concern with variants right now are those from the UK and South Africa, scientists are finding at least seven variants that originated here. More concerning is that they are all evolving in the same way, potentially becoming more contagious. These other strains are not as prevalent yet, but it makes the case for better surveillance on how the virus is changing in our population. Carl Zimmer, columnist at the New York Times, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Texans deserve answers about why these shortfalls occurred and how they're going to be corrected, and Texans will get those answers. Joining us now is Josh Letterman, correspondent at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Great to be with you. Texas has been the story of the week. They were hit with a huge winter storm, uh, really caught everybody off guard, it seems like. At its peak, at the peak of all the stuff that was going on, the power grid just totally buckled under the pressure of the extreme weather. I think 4 million homes were blacked out. They had no power. That lasted for a few days. I think for the most part now, most of the state has gotten a lot of their power back. There's still a few hundred thousand that don't have power, but that's kind of changing. They're working on all of this. But what happened with the energy grid there? From my understanding, it's a lot of different things. There was blame thrown on wind and solar farms, things like that. But that's not the complete picture. I mean, the state uh, has its own independent grid, independent of the United States everywhere else. That's how Texas wanted it. But there's a natural gas that figures into this, coal plants that figure into this. It was just a mess overall. So, Josh, help us walk through what some of the state was going through, especially with their power grid. Well, that's exactly right. It was a whole combination of many different factors. You can think of energy systems like supply and demand. And here in Texas, you had a real one-two punch where the demand was off the charts because you had so many people freezing in their homes, turning up the heat, trying to warm their homes and businesses, creating all kinds of demand for electricity. And then on the supply side, you just did not have enough power to go around because you had so many power generators that were knocked offline because of the frigid weather. And although initially you had some politicians in Texas who were blaming the fact that some wind turbines that would normally be generating electricity had iced over and were not able to produce electricity, really the vast majority of the problem about why they didn't have enough power to go around in Texas had to do with those traditional sources. We call them thermal sources, but we're talking natural gas, coal, and even a nuclear plant that was knocked offline. In the case of those natural gas plants, which make up a large amount of the energy supply in Texas, you had issues like the pipes that bring the natural gas to those plants freezing. The fact that the state's 
had to make sure that homes got gas to heat their homes before they supplied it to the power plants that use that gas to make power. And in fact, looking at what the authorities there planned for on a cold day for what they'd need, renewable sources like wind and solar actually performed better compared to their expectations than did the old traditional sources like coal and natural gas. Tell me a little bit about their independent grid and why they're not attached to the rest of the U.S. And then the other problem was that weatherization efforts, they just really didn't make the attempt to go full bore on it. They only were kind of preparing for peak demand, like peak winter demand that they thought they could get through it. But the winter storm was much worse than they anticipated, and they just were not able to meet that demand later. Yeah, that's right. And those two things you just outlined are directly connected because the fact that the energy generation equipment in Texas was not weatherized is a direct result from the fact that they do have this independent energy grid. So Texas, they didn't want to be part of sort of the national system in which you basically have a huge network on the east side of the country and one on the west side of the country. It's all interconnected. So if power isn't really being generated in one part of the country. They can borrow at a time of need from another part and kind of equal everything out. That can't happen with Texas because it's disconnected from that grid. And they really wanted their independence from the federal government. This is a state where politicians for years have talked about seceding from the U.S. They value their independence. But one of the things that means is that the grid there in Texas, it's not subject to regulation from what's known as FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which says if you're going to have power lines that cross state lines, you're going to have to follow certain rules, like making sure that your power plants are able to withstand really cold temperatures, really hot temperatures, be able to operate under these conditions. Texas didn't have to follow those regulations because they kind of went on their own with their Texas energy grid. And as a result, they made the decision not to take the kinds of steps such as weatherizing their gas plants and their putting insulation on pipes, putting special coatings on their windmills that would make them able to operate even when you have all of this ice and cold temperatures. It really shines a light on What happens in these extreme weather events, which we keep seeing more and more, scientists predict this is going to happen more, and what do we rely on now? Batteries are still a long way off from being a chief source of power storage, especially in these big states like this. And as I mentioned, you know, just climate change, these big weather events keep happening more and more and take a toll on these power grids. That's absolutely right. And we should note, you know, it's difficult to attribute any one particular weather event to climate change. But climate scientists tell us the kind of thing we're seeing in Texas is certainly more likely to happen in the future as the planet gets warmer and the climate less stable. And beyond that, even though the power issues in this case did not stem from wind and solar, as we move as a nation towards more reliance on renewable sources like wind and solar so that we can stop emitting as much and try to prevent further climate change, those sources are going to have some issues, such as the fact that the sun doesn't shine 24 hours a day, the wind isn't always blowing. And that's why our energy experts tell us that we're going to need to do a lot more as far as resilience, including those batteries that you mentioned. We're going to need to have ways to store power when we are generating it so that we can release it onto the system when we need it most and might not be able to generate it. That technology is coming very quickly. It's developing. It's still very expensive, but it's the kind of thing that major companies are working hard to try to get 
scaled up so that we can have more reliable system and hopefully prevent folks in Texas and everywhere else in the U.S. from having to go through things like this ever in the future. Josh Letterman, correspondent at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It evades the protection from some of the monoclonal antibodies, and it diminishes somewhat the capability and the effectiveness of the vaccine to block it. It doesn't eliminate it, but it diminishes it by multiple fold. Joining us now is Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks so much. One of the things we had been concerned about for some time now is the rise of these new coronavirus variants and the vaccine's effectiveness against them. We've been hearing that they might be more transmissible. And with the South African variant, we heard that it could reduce the efficacy of the vaccines. Well, now we're getting a little bit of data to support that. Pfizer is saying that their vaccine loses some potency against this South African variant specifically. They didn't do like clinical trials. These were lab experiments. But Andrew, tell us a little bit more about it. So with the rise of these variants that appear to have some effect, whether it's on immunity or transmissibility, the vaccine makers have been doing tests to look at how well their vaccines stack up against the different mutations and the different variants. And what Pfizer and its partner BioNTech reported yesterday was that, and this is taken from blood from people who were previously vaccinated, they basically take that blood and see how well it stands up against the variant in, in lab experiments. And basically it showed that it showed a drop in the blood's ability to neutralize the virus compared to other forms of the coronavirus. And what that means is a little hard to tell because this is just a lab experiment in a way. But basically other vaccines that have been tested against this variant called B1351 in in real world settings have also shown a decline in effectiveness. So there is some sense that this variant may not be quite as good of a target as other forms of the coronavirus. What about Moderna? Because Moderna and Pfizer are the most closely related type of vaccines. They're both these mRNA vaccines. So both Moderna and Pfizer finished their clinical trials before this variant and some of these other variants that people have probably heard about emerged. So there's similarly, there's not clinical data with the Moderna vaccine. Moderna and Pfizer have the two authorized vaccines in the U.S., and they finished their clinical trials before this variant and other variants that people have probably heard about sort of emerged. So there aren't clinical data with them, but Moderna last month reported something similar as Pfizer did yesterday, and that in lab experiments, the blood taken from people who had received the Moderna vaccine didn't neutralize this variant, the B1351 variant, um, as well as other forms of the coronavirus. What exactly that means is, again, hard hard to know for sure, but again, it just sort of adds to the evidence that this variant has some sort of escape from the vaccines. What we're seeing next is, uh, and we heard about this already, that some of these vaccine makers are working on uh, booster shots to target the variant. You know, at least with the case of Pfizer, Moderna, they can tweak the entire vaccine to make it stand up, hopefully to this and other variants as well. So these are kind of the next steps in, in tweaking the way the vaccine works itself. Different companies are sort of looking at what the next generation COVID vaccines might be. They might be more designed off of this specific variant, or they might sort of be designed to target multiple strains of the coronavirus. So that is ongoing. And, and you know, that, that's a process that's done with other vaccines. It's not a perfect comparison, but every year the flu shot is sort of reformulated based on the strains they think are going to be circulating in a given season. So there is some know how to do this. They'll have to work with uh, regulators as well. I mean, 
I guess the thought process isn't that they will go through full-on clinical trials all over again. I mean, it's already approved. These are just tweaks, so they might be able to push them through faster too, right? Right, exactly. And so regulators like the FDA, are they've publicly said they're trying to figure out what they might require from sort of updated vaccines. But again, this is something they have some experience with and might apply something similar like to their flu protocol. All that being said, obviously, we should all still be getting the current vaccines in, in whatever form they're in. That's why they're working on these booster shots. And it's not like it doesn't provide no protection at all. It's just that it might slip through a little bit more. But that's still very important that we should still be getting the vaccines in their current form. Exactly. I think, first of all, in the U.S., this variant B1351, it's in the U.S., but it is for now, that could change, appears to be circulating at pretty low levels. The other thing is that even in the with the vaccines that have clinical data, like from Johnson & Johnson, that shows the vaccine loses some of its effectiveness against this variant. It's not like an all or nothing thing. It will likely provide a good amount of protection, maybe not the same amount of protection as if you were exposed to a different variant. And what that means is like maybe it still prevents you from getting really sick or from dying, but you might just be more likely to have like a sort of a symptomatic case of COVID. So there's like some gray area and some nuance here. It's not like vaccines don't either work or they don't work. Right. It's also a matter of like what they're blocking, whether it's mild disease versus severe disease and sort of the rate at which they do that. And the South African variant is the more concerning one right now, but you're right, it's it's not as prevalent as the UK variant. The CDC said, I think by the end of March, that that one could be the dominant strain here in the United States. Have we seen any of this similar type of research when it comes to the effectiveness of the vaccines on that strain, the UK strain? That variant, it's called B117. It is spreading pretty well in the US. And, and as you said, will likely become dominant late next month into April. So far, it seems that if there is any effect on vaccine effectiveness, it, it's minor at that. But the data are pretty limited. But so far, it doesn't seem to be sort of have the same escape potential that the B1351 variant does. Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Are there some mutations? at the very tip of the spike that help them to grab onto cells. They're almost like they're stickier. This mutation that is in these seven lineages is somewhere else. It's down near the base of the spike. Joining us now is Carl Zimmer, columnist at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Carl. Thanks for having me. We've been seeing a lot of good news, bad news with the coronavirus. We're seeing infection rates drop, hospitalizations go down, all great news. But the big concern has always been these variants that have been popping up right now, specifically the ones out of the UK and South Africa. But a new study said that we have about seven different virus variants that are found here in the United States. They all carry the same mutation. Carl, tell us what we're seeing here in the U.S. What we're seeing is this virus basically you know, probing our biology and evolving new ways to take advantage of it. So there are new mutations that are popping up. and Scientists are just desperately trying to figure out which ones are making them more of a threat to us. So this latest development is particularly striking because you have seven different lineages in the United States, all of which have gained the same mutation at the exact same spot in the exact same gene, and they're all growing. They're still pretty rare, but they're all steadily seem to be growing. And so that suggests that maybe this mutation is making them more contagious. 
That's been the concern, obviously, with the two other big variants we were hearing about from the UK and South Africa. And these mutations always end up having to do something with that spike protein, the way the virus latches onto us and then starts replicating in our body. So where are we seeing these variants in the United States? And then how are how is this uh, mutation working with them? At this point, these seven variants are sprinkled across the country. There's some indication that maybe a couple of them started in the south somewhere, south or southwest, but it's really hard to tell because we just don't do enough surveillance of variants yet. We're really behind the ball with that. But as you say, a lot of the key mutations that we're seeing involve this protein that sticks off the surface of the virus called spike. Now, there are some mutations at the very tip of the spike that help them to grab onto cells. They're almost like they're stickier. This mutation that is in these seven lineages is somewhere else. It's down near the base of the spike. But that might have something to do with what happens after the virus sticks to a cell. What happens then is that it has these basically these sort of harpoons that shoot out from the base of the spike and latch onto the cell and pull the cell and the virus together so they can fuse. And it looks like this mutation conceivably might make it easier for those harpoons to deploy. You made mention of surveillance and how much surveillance we do here in the United States. I mean, a lot of this really calls for just so much more of that, how the virus is changing within our own population here. And we're just not doing enough of that. We need better coordination between state, local officials and across the country. You made note in your article about how these variants were kind of discovered. One doctor uploaded this to an online database. Then he got contacted from a doctor in another state and they were comparing and contrasting and say, oh, these variants have the same mutation. So that's how they're coordinating. That's how they're finding out that there's all this commonality. They're kind of working semi-independently and they are working on really shoestring budgets and they're only often in, in many states, they're getting a tiny fraction of 1% of all of the positive coronavirus tests. So they're missing a lot. But, you know, every now and then they're catching these things and noticing a pattern. And we need to be just doing that and doing it a lot more. And scientists say, just get ready for more of this. Expect that new mutations, new variants are going to be popping up. You know, as we've seen, some obviously will be more successful than others, as we've seen with the UK variant. I think the CDC said that by the end of March or so, that that could be the dominant strain here in the United States. So it's not that these multiple variants might become the dominant one, but the virus is always mutating. We've been here before. This is what influenza does in its own particular way. And the CDC and other government organizations are very well set up to keep track of how influenza mutates and shifts. And then they respond very quickly with new kinds of public health measures for vaccines or to be on guard for outbreaks. So we just need to be doing that for coronavirus. As you mentioned, these are just kind of sprinkled across the U.S. right now. There's no indication that one of these seven variants uh, are going to start picking up or anything. We don't know enough about them yet. We don't even know their biology very well. So scientists are now doing experiments with viruses that carry these particular mutations just to try to figure out, well, does this really matter? There's so many basic questions about this virus we, we just don't have answers to. Carl Zimmer, columnist at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.